Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Abner Maris is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Maris, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man he is. On his show, he's going to chat about topics like the state of boxing, sports, music, culture, and family life, but also his own journey from a kid on the streets to boxing champ. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Maris wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Jesse Marshall. Jesse, what's going on, man? Oh, not much. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to do this one. Um, it's a bit risky on our end to do record a podcast about the Pittsburgh Penguins because the likelihood of Jim Rutherford pulling off some sort of a trade between the time I record and the time people listen is uh, higher than it is for most teams and most GMs, I imagine. So we're kind of playing with fire a little bit there, but um, there's certainly a lot for us to discuss here today. There's never a dull moment. It's been a uh, it's been a wild couple months, so we could we, we could probably go for a couple hours here if we had to. Well, and the reason why I wanted to do this particular show, um, beyond the fact that the Penguins were obviously active and, and made a lot of moves, was I do feel like there's a discussion here about the Penguins. It's going to start off with the specifics of the moves they made, but it kind of has um, league-wide utility because they've gone through this sort of... Uh, trajectory as an organization in terms of going from from back-to-back cup titles to um, where they're at now and there's a lot of decisions and kind of crossroad moments along the way that that got them to this point and so you can really apply it to to any team if that you're a fan of so I think at the root of it the machinations of kind of roster construction theory and team building principles are going to be of interest to to everyone so uh, I'm really excited to, to get into this one with you because I think at the root of it like there's the sort of the, the, the decisions that they made um, are really telling of kind of how 
NHL teams operate and how cyclical this stuff can be where a team can be pulling all the right strings and really be on the right path and then a couple bad results happen and all of a sudden you sort of lose your way and throw out of the window and and things completely turn on their head. Yeah, and I, I guess I think from from the Penguins fan perspective, it's if you got to go back to sort of the the immediate aftermath, right, of the back to back Stanley Cup runs, and I think the national conversation at that point, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the national conversation at that point was that the Penguins had really found something interesting in the way that they'd not only aligned their roster with that you know, the speed element up and down three lines that could attack in any number of ways, uh, and a pretty, you know, pretty competent mobile defense. Uh, and everybody said, Oh, well, th- this is going to be copycat now, right? Everybody in the league is going to steal this. This is going to be, uh, uh, across the league. Now people are going to play like this. And the first thing that Jim Rutherford did after winning those cups and having that national conversation was go out and get Ryan Reeves, hmm. which was kind of the antithesis of everything that that team uh, was about at the time. And I know we're starting to get and a point. The reason I'm going to bring this up, Demetri, is I think over time we can mince things down and people will complain that we're, we're getting into the weeds. And But once you add it all together, you take all these tiny little pieces and you culminate them into one big picture, I think there's a lot of damning parts to it. Uh, I think Oster Sunquist, you know, has been a serviceable player for the Blues. Clem Costin's in the KHL right now, may make the Blues out of camp this year. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reeves played a half a season for the Penguins, and the the, the head coach uh, was essentially, you know, I, I think not forced, but was squeezing out, you know, minutes of ice time, and trying to find useful scenarios for the player from the moment he arrived. And the, the 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 sort of messaging we got from that Dimitri as well, the Capitals and these other teams, you know, they really they really we feel like they really took some liberties with us. Sure, but you won, yeah. right? So if, if if you win, take all the liberties you want, right? You know, like I'll I'll take the trophy every single time, and that that move for me was the first one that that kind of comes out of left field. And then that vision that you had in that, in that window with those cups kind of just gets brushed by the wayside. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because that obviously followed um, the ultimate triumph or the ultimate success because I was going to sort of intro today's show by kind of talking about how the backdrop of, of this particular offseason for the Penguins was kind of dictated or um, there was a kind of cloud hanging over and looming over and sort of dictating most of their decisions because of this kind of bitter taste left in their mouths and and sort of nationally just looking at how they sort of meekly exited the postseason i guess they didn't even technically make it they lost in the play-in series to the montreal canadians but it's normally we see teams kind of um overreact to small samples in in a best of seven or in this case a best of five and make these kind of widespread decisions based on an unfortunate outcome but i think with this penguins team and, and we can get into this certainly like it is a four game sample and normally I'd I'd be the one sitting here saying listen you run into uh, a throwback version of Carey Price where he's got like positive six goals saved above expected in those four games and a 947 save percentage and you think listen that sometimes happens you don't want to make decisions dictated on that but it really is 
um, more than four games because the 20 or so games before that, before the stoppage, was this kind of downward trajectory as well. And, and that's kind of what I'm having a difficult time reconciling when I evaluate this team and think about their future outlook because the start of the season was so promising. And I remember I had you on the show and we were talking about um, all of the sort of uh, positive things they'd done defensively and how they'd navigated all the injuries they had and how much talent was on this team and how well they were playing. And then you kind of contrast that to the lasting image we have now of the Penguins uh, the last time we saw them play. And the dichotomy between those two is, is so stark. So there are a couple of things, right? So I think the Penguins had the, the misfortune of getting a good version of Carey Price, one that was better than... A really good version. Yeah, when, when they'd stopped playing. They had the misfortune of seeing uh, Nick Suzuki blossom into a top six center right in front of everyone. Uh, which is something that I, I didn't think I had him pegged as when that series started. Uh, and then there was just the malaise of the Penguins. So all of that other stuff happened, sure. But in the elimination game itself, it only really took 30 seconds to say, like, um, barring some sort of unforeseen stroke of luck, this game is over. You know, it, it systematically, and this is, I think, the first time you probably could say this outright, even even going back to last year's Islanders series, I don't think you could say this, is that Mike Sullivan got out, out coached. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his assistants are gone as a result of that. Uh, I don't know what the length of his leash looks like now, given the, the results of the last two seasons, uh, but that was very stagnant. And, uh, you know, everyone sort of had that, you know, Montreal is going to try to put a wet blanket over this game, right? It's going to try to kill it. They're going to try to counterattack and... and Tristan Jari being in net kind of give you the hope that maybe that puck playing ability would start to springboard things and you'd start to see more life out of the team. But it was just a failed game plan from the drop of the puck. So I think uh, going into the the pandemic, Dimitri, there was an innocuous Tuesday night game against the New Jersey Devils that the Penguins won by the, it was an ugly score, 3-1 maybe, I think. Uh, just not even really a great performance, but it was so important, that win, that everyone's like, well, this is, could be the one that turns it around. You know, this could be the thing that really makes the engine go. But they're warts that I think they refuse to acknowledge as warts. And maybe in particular that the third pairing of Johnson and Schultz. And some of the things like that had really started to catch up with them. Uh, and you got to, I think you got to, you know, make the bed you lay, uh, lay in the bed you made a couple times. Well, and I'd say that that elimination game, it feels like a another lifetime ago now at this point, even though it only was a couple months ago. But I remember at the time just watching it kind of transpire and just being dumbfounded by um, the effort I was just seeing. Like it's you, you want to certainly give credit to the Canadians for their uh, for their blueprint and their game plan and the way they play defensively. But I mean in an elimination game like that, if you see a team register three high danger shot attempts all games mm-hmm. in all situations, 22 shots on goal, Malkin and Crosby and playing under 20 minutes. high danger chance yep. until almost basically the third period. Yeah. You go through the first 40 minutes with, with not even a single sniff of the slot area. Well, that, and, and, and so I'm certainly far from it from someone to come on here and, and kind of come up with hot takes and be hyperbolic and, and make too much of one game. But when you watch that, I do understand coming away from him being like, all right, there's some underlying issues here. We need to address them. 
we need to stop this ship from sinking further before it's too late, especially given the timeline of Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin still being really, really good and trying to squeeze out every last kind of competitive year you can out of those two guys. And so that's what we're going to do today. That's kind of the plan for, for today's show. I want to get into how they went about that, um, whether they're better off for it, and kind of dissect all these moves because they certainly made a lot of them. So for those listening at home, uh, pour yourself a drink, get comfortable, and come along for this ride with us because it's gonna be a, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun one. So let's start off with, um, I think sort of well, I think it was the first move they made, and, and it was kind of the splashiest in terms of trading uh, Philip Hollander and the fifteenth overall pick for Kasperi Kapanen. And and I remember the time it happened. This podcast was on a bit of a hiatus, and so I wasn't recording you shows and. It was driving me crazy just seeing the discourse about it and seeing some of the the takes that were happening on both sides, both good and bad, and, and seeing how uh, Kapanen himself was being discussed as a player and seeing the the kind of discussion or the narrative from the Penguins' perspective of the driving force for why they did that trade. And I remember just kind of messaging you, sliding into your DMs at the time, and messaging you about it and kind of venting some of my frustrations. And I'm excited to finally get to actually discuss it kind of publicly on air now. But let's just get into that move and discuss Kapanen as a player and the fit for the Penguins and sort of the motivating factor, why they did it, um, what he's going to look like on this team and, and, and all of it. And you can kind of start this conversation from any of those angles that you that you want to do so. Well, I mean, if you go back to that Montreal series, uh, the player that was on that spot in the roster, that top line right wing position was Connor Sherry, who is what he is, right? I mean, probably not a player that's really suited for that role, uh, but has a name in the National Hockey League for making the most out of his time there and his initial run with Crosby years ago. Before that, it was Dominic Simone, who anyone will Pittsburgh will, will, will espouse analytically as a player who can help drive play was Dominic Simone, right? I mean, the Penguins didn't even qualify him. So they felt like the hole in their top six, your second line being Jason Zucker, Evgeny Malkin, and Brian Russ. That's a great line. I think Jason Zucker could conceivably score 35, 40 goals with a healthy Evgeny Malkin. We already know Jake Gensel can, can put up 40. There was a gap, and I think that they wanted to address that. And what they did was they went out into the market, identified their player, um, and paid a great price for it and we have to consider dimitri the the environment that toronto was in when they made this deal everyone in the league knew that kasperi kapitan was the cap casualty of toronto that he was the player that had to go so the penguins give up the 15th pick overall uh they give up evan rodriguez who they eventually bring back later i'm sure we'll get to that yep uh and they give up Philip Hollander. Now, the Penguins don't agree with me about this. That much is clear. I Philip Hollander can be a tough one to judge because of his injury history. Uh, it hasn't played as much as you would like for when he was drafted. But he was legitimately the third or fourth best prospect in your system. Now, I know saying the third or fourth best prospect in Pittsburgh is a lot different than it is you know, going to Ottawa or some other place that's rich with talent. But the point stands. Why did it, was it necessary to sacrifice all of that from a team dealing from a position of, you know, where you essentially had the negotiation advantage? Uh, and I think that was a question for me about this trade and whether or not, uh, you know, where we judge it, you know, years from now is can Kasperi Kapanen play with Sidney Crosby? Because the answer to that question in Toronto, you know, for Austin Matthews and the talented players they had there, John Tavares, any number of guys was no. 
they did not feel like he could do that. And if you, you know, I think back <laughs> to when Chris Kunitz, you know, first joined the Penguins and was playing with Sidney Crosby, uh, one of it, you know, a frequent comment that he would give uh, to the media was how difficult it was. And not only did you have to play with this high-level talent that thought the game at a level so far beyond you, but when you were on the bench, he just wouldn't shut up. And it was this constant, <laughs> constant source of feedback and micro-analyzing of the minutia of the game. And, and Kunitz had to really make an adjustment to that. And if it didn't work out, with, and this is no disrespect to Austin Matthews, who's an amazing hockey player, but if it didn't work out with Austin Matthews, what leads you to believe it is going to work out with Sidney Crosby? Where you're arguably now, that's a harder environment, I think. Yeah. Well, okay, so the pros for Kasperi Kavner as a player are he skates really fast, and uh, everyone quickly made sure to point that out when this trade happened. He's still only 24 years old, so you could argue that um, – while agent curves dictate that you know he might not be uh, have as much room to grow as a player as as we might have thought in the past certainly he's still got some years ahead of him and two years ago you mentioned matthews he did play with him about 600 515 minutes or so in that 2018-19 season and, and they were pretty effective together and you kind of put that all together and, and it certainly you could be like oh listen he plays with crosby crosby um he just basically has to retrieve the puck kind of fly around crosby will get him it and that sounds great in principle. The thing is with Kapanen, and I think it was kind of telling to see how many people had actually sort of watched him closely and kind of pragmatically thought about him as a player, is uh, I just don't really see a player there that I think I think Sidney Crosby is going to hate playing with Kasper Kapanen. Mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly just... I yeah. it's, it's funny because Toronto media loves to pile on completely unnecessarily and unwarranted, I should say, uh, for William Nylander in terms of, oh, he's he's so soft. He's such a perimeter player. He kind of hangs out on the outside. He enters the zone and does that button hook and just kind of throws the puck on net. And in reality, this past year, he was like one of the most uh, dangerous players in that scoring chance area around the net in terms of generating looks and scoring from in tight. Whereas Kapanen actually is kind of that player where he certainly creates a few breakaways here or there. And if you catch him on the right shift, his speed can be intoxicating and you can talk yourself into, oh man, if he can do this all the time, he's going to be a game breaker. But in reality, what you get is a lot of shifts where he takes the puck, he enters the zone, and it's kind of a possession killer where it's just going to meekly wind up on net. And it's not, he's just not thinking the game on a higher level in terms of, okay, what are the next two sort of steps here of where the puck should go, where do I need to go to get something better? And I don't want to, you know, disparage a player's um, sort of smarts or hockey IQ because that's such a tough thing to quantify. But that is ultimately what I think of when I compare. You know, guys with these physical tools like an Andreas Athanasiu or an Xperia Kapanen where they skate so fast in a straight line. But ultimately, it is a bit of empty calorie flash because when you dig beneath beneath that surface, you realize that in a regular hockey game at 5-1-5, there's so few times where you're going to be able to just purely utilize that speed. You need those quicker cuts in tight. You need to be able to sort of move off of the puck in the offensive zone and in reality for a player like Kapanen playing with Crosby, I do wonder what that fit is going to be like. And I think if, you know, I went back and um, tried to identify his highest expected goal circumstances from the year and see what role he played in those circumstances. 
and you know were these scoring chances and quality shots coming vis-a-vis his work or was he along for the ride and i and i found a lot of instances you know to your point of three on twos with you know he's got a center drive so somebody that's driving a defenseman to the net and is taking the pressure off him as a puck carrier uh, and then maybe a lateral passing option that again is driving a defenseman away from him there's time that's afforded in these circumstances space that's opening up as the play is developing and then you know a couple minutes later or seconds later the puck's high off the glass and now that's an outlet pass for the other team so i get that same sense <laughs> and i the the added value for the penguins and again i perceived value for me is that he's built like a truck hmm. and he and he can be physical if you get him in the wall or in those battle areas he can lay some lumber out there uh, you know we can get into a discussion about whether or not that's super fruitful and what role that plays in the grand scheme of a line but uh i think that you've heard that when the when the trade got made and and it, we you know, I, I bring that Ryan Reeves thing up for a reason because that, that penchant for we need to be physical. We need this fast. This, this is the best of both worlds because it's going to give us the speed and the physicality. But there's a lot of blanks in the middle there that need to be filled in. Um, and the argument for me is, you know, people say, well, at the very worst, he's going to make that third line better for Pittsburgh. That That may be true, but you gave up a 15th overall pick your third or fourth best prospect and utility pieces to acquire this player. So I, I don't, again, now that we, we go back to, was the payment, um, you know, was it correct? I mean, we look at Jack Johnson's contract, right? A player that Jim Rutherford identified and again, hyper fixated on. Um, and by the way, you know, let's talk about the nostalgia element at play here, Dimitri, hmm. um, at, in both of these deals. And we could take that all the way back to Carolina, Eric Cole, Corey Stillman, you know, any number of players there. Uh, the Jack Johnson deal, everybody kind of felt like that contract was a little bit, you know, Jim Rutherford gave out a contract uh, that, that was uh, appropriate for competition where there was none. Uh, Brandon Tanev, great player last year, by the way. Unbelievable yep. for what for the Penguins. But that contract, you know, it's just, you, you, it's hard sometimes in these circumstances to separate contract from player, and there's an there's an identifiable pattern of finding something, fixating on it, and then paying a price that you know maybe isn't necessary. Well, I saw, I think I forget who it was, but it was brought up when this trade happened of how this is sort of Jim Rutherford's mo, where he identifies a player he likes, he kind of locks in on it. And he will just get it done. And regardless of price, like he just wants that player, he's going to add him to his team. And I do think that's admirable in terms of like decisiveness and like Worked having conviction. Castle, right? Yeah, of course. Like it's 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 a good quality. The problem is is and this is what GMs bump into so many times when they're just pure sort of uh, like hockey talent evaluators. There's a business component to this where you don't have an infinite amount of resources to improve your team. There's an opportunity cost. There's a limit in terms of draft picks and cap space. And so when you're kind of you understanding the market and leverage and all these kind of like really simple business 101 uh, qualities, you need to use that to build your team because you can't just be like bidding against yourselves and paying a premium because 
the question isn't did you improve the Pittsburgh Penguins it's did you do the most with the assets you had to improve them do you have other ways now to improve them and and so for me when I look at this trade and I and I just think because you're right like in theory, he could improve the third line. When the Penguins made this move, I think it was pretty clear they envisioned him retrieving the puck for Crosby and playing with him and giving him that speed element to help avoid what happened in, in Montreal where they were able to kind of blanket him and, and, and give him fits. And I just think when I view Crosby, and especially at this point of his career when he's attacking in the offensive zone, he's kind of like that like uh, wily quarterback where he's not really beating you on the first read. He's kind of waiting for the defense to make a mistake and waiting for something to open up and it comes on the third or the fourth read and that acquires smart players to play with him to keep moving and keep finding those open pockets to receive the passes and that's where this question of how Kapanen fits with him and whether those two skill sets will actually be able to mesh at five on five really becomes debatable for me because I do think that for Crosby you really need a player that can that can think the game along that level with him and I just, at this point, we haven't seen from Kapanen to suggest that he will. I understand it's kind of limited sample sizes, but he played like 200 minutes or so this year with John Tavares at 5 on 5, and the results were, quite frankly, dreadful. And his impacts on the ice were, were really poor. And so beyond just being able to skate fast, I've yet to see a tangible argument to suggest why Crosby and Kapanen would actually make sense together as, as talents. Let me first just state, apropos of, of what you said a moment ago, uh, that I'm the Crosby, the aging Crosby, Dimitri, gives me distinct 2001-era uh, comeback Lemieux vibes. Hmm. In that, he did not dart around the ice and bowl people over like we had come you know, accustomed to him doing over the course of his career. He embarrassed you in other ways. And I almost prefer cerebral pick-you-apart Crosby with the third eye in the back of his head to the one that could burst through defenders and score these highlight real backhand you know, on one-leg goals. Uh, because I think what you get out of him now is, is a player who almost elevates the expected goal outcomes, the shot volume outcomes, the scoring chance outcomes of his line mates in a much different way. In a much more, dare I say, direct way, Dimitri, where now it's coming off his stick. Right. So to your point, uh, we look at Jake Gensel, who I always say is the son of a coach, hmm. and you can see it in the way he plays hockey. Uh, he will find space where there is none, and he's almost ghost-like. He scores so many goals standing alone in the middle of four defensive players on the other team, and you just wonder how have they not seen him? What is what is? But he's just got a way of lurking, lurking, and then finding that space. And Sidney Crosby will wait for him. And you'll watch Crosby go in the corner, not looking at Jake Gensel, looking at the fender, looking at the goalie, looking at Chris Letang, but he's watching Jake Gensel, and that moment comes, and then that pucks off his stick and it's in the net. Does anything about Kasperi Kapanen strike you as the kind of player, that, that he's the kind of player that's going to go out there and, and kind of do that? I mean, I, I, I think that one of the biggest criticisms you could make of him is that sometimes in the offensive zone he's aloof in a bad way um that's not that's not good so i i want to pin what you've said about this asset resource management piece hmm. for when we get to the defense because we haven't even begun uh to crack the the, the surface on this but we, we live and die in pittsburgh right you have to understand by this window this this ambiguous window um, the window is the is the villain 
right? It's staring all of us down. It, it, the time is expiring. It's almost as if uh, we've been given X number of years to just live, right? And we're trying to elongate it as much as we possibly can. Right. But I feel like what we've essentially done, though, is screamed about the window closing as we jam it down yep. ourselves. Uh, and it's kind of like now we're in our search for, you know, this next HBK, whatever it might be, um, you know, we're, we've taken, I think really Dimitri to, to saying that results, past results are not important because they didn't happen in Pittsburgh. So anything that didn't take place in this team, this, this environment has changed. And I think whether that comes from what happened with Jamie Oleksiak kind of turning it around here, we know Matt Niskanen did Justin Schultz for a brief period of time and a brief period of time, um, that's a whole nother conversation. Hmm. I don't think Washington is getting paying for what no. they think they're getting. Uh, there were brief moments where these Eric Goodbranson, another great example. There's almost like this uh, hubris that comes with that, that we can do anything here. We can rehabilitate any player and mold them into what we want, uh, ignoring all of the opportunities and times where that did not work. I literally have a note in my uh, on my paper right here. I'm looking at that says Matheson and then equals and then Jolts hubris question mark. Because that's like we'll get into more that deal more, but that's exactly what I think of where a team has kind of a home run or or a really big net positive move, and then they sort of talk themselves into oh we can we can just execute this again and just keep doing this over and over again and just completely throwing past results out the window. But like that the that window we talk about with Crosby, Malkin, and sort of and I get that a lot every time I discuss or every time I tweet about a Penguins move or transaction. You get you get a certain segment of the Penguins fan base that comes back and goes, what do we care about? three, four years down the window. What do we care about the fact that uh, the Penguins inherited those extra couple years on the back end of Matheson's deal when he'll be in his 30s? What do we care about this first round pick that probably won't play for the Penguins by the time, you know, by the time they're in the lineup making a, a big difference, Crosby and Malkin might not even be here anymore. And I think that that's just such a misguided way to look at, at roster building because it implies that you have an endless amount of like first round picks or premium assets to be able to trade, where in reality... The conversation is, could you use that first to improve your team down the road in a more significant manner than this? And that's ultimately what the conversation comes down to, not did the Penguins get better having Kasperi Kapanen as opposed to this first-round pick on their team three years down the road. So for me, it, it, it's interesting to see that kind of brought up over and over again every time the Penguins make a move where it's like, who cares about this future asset? We need to improve this team now, completely missing the forest for the trees because you're like, oh you could use that asset to do something more significant that'll actually improve the team more than what you'd used it on at the moment. Correct. Uh, so this is a big one. What, what would that first round, you know, pick have netted you, uh, you know, in another environment? Uh, it's not, I agree, uh, uh, Dylan Holloway uh, or Caden goal versus Kasperi Kapanen conversation. Um, I think in addition to this, uh, we think about the future. And we talked about some of these contracts, the Brandon Tanev deal. We'll get into Mike Matheson. You look at his contract. That was pretty much, Dimitri, uh, feel free to disagree, regarded as the worst contract in hockey mm -hmm. that they picked up. I mean, well, you could make that argument. One of the non-branch you know, Seabrook division. Sure. Yeah, there we go. Um, now, I think, you know, you start to wade into a conversation of certainly win now is real. 
and you can do that. There's ways to, to focus on win now without – I mean if you think about the letter that the Chicago Blackhawks just sent out, right? Juxtapose that with the letter that the New York Rangers sent out. Now look, the New York Rangers, they got Capococco. They got lucky. They got a lot of luck in the lottery that helped them. They also made some savvy moves in signing Panarin and Truba and did things that accelerated, that helped them accelerate that turnaround time. So these contracts and these decisions and the asset use, to me, are some of the things that diff- that, that make the difference between you being Chicago, you know, five, ten years from now, or being New York. And it's hard to get out of some of these deals. And you're just, you know, I, I know we're not thinking about the future. All I see this doing is really elongating the post-Crosby-Malkin pivot that's going to inevitably take place and making it much more harder for someone to navigate. Yeah, term kills you in this league. I think tacking on those extra years on any contract you inherit um, really limits your flexibility. And it's kind of the thing that um, I was thinking of the most when I was prepping for this show because you know at the start of this Rutherford-Sullivan combo when the penguins won those back-to-back cups beyond having crosby and malkin on the team the thing that i sort of admired the most or viewed as like the most um replicable blueprint for other teams to follow in terms of building a successful sustainable contender for years to come was their contract outlook where you know they had crosby and malkin and kessel at the time under contract for a handful of years and latang and flurry i guess but for a lot of their skaters they weren't tacking on those extra years they they had a lot of flexibility in terms of their ability to year in and year out improve their team kind of reload on the fly and they've really gone away from that i guess it started like when they gave patrick hornquist that big deal and they started sort of uh kind of going away from that mo and that's something that i look at and, and that's kind of really telling to me and that's when teams really start to to get desperate in my opinion when they start sort of giving players that are ultimately might improve the team but are kind of replaceable and aren't necessarily uh core foundational players those extra years because that really limits your ability to pivot or change your trajectory or or get better on the fly because teams just aren't really going to be in the market and that interested to take on a guy who has another three four years left on his deal if he is a questionable asset and the farther you get away from the Stanley Cup, the further, the, I think the harder that sell becomes. I think Patrick Cornquist going to Florida um, is a unique circumstance for any number of reasons, uh, but that sheen starts to wear off. The mystery around, you know, the mythical things those players did in that playoff run becomes so far in the rear view that, um, you know, you're not selling that anymore. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, t- to your point, you could even make the argument, I think, that the genesis of this goes back to Chris Kunitz, mm. who is fondly remembered for scoring a triple overtime goal against the Ottawa Senators to launch the Penguins to the Cup, but has forgotten that it went, like, what, 24 games before that without scoring at all. Uh, and you know, it kind of just become a passenger uh, more than any kind of driver in play. So the, the Hornquist trade um, was one that, I think was difficult for people who believe in big time intangibles to swallow. Uh, But I think most people were okay with it, given the fact that his availability was so slight that the the dollar per minute you were paying for him at this point was just 
uh, difficult to justify. Okay, well, we'll put up in that for a second. We're going to talk about uh, that Matheson for Hornquist swap and, and sort of the blue line now and get into more of those the moves that we have alluded to. We're going to take a quick little break here to hear from a sponsor, and then we're going to, we're going to do all that. The NHL may be on a break, but your business isn't. And similar to teams who are looking for new players in free agency and looking for bargain deals and players that are going to be able to help them out moving forward, you similarly have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. And that's where Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring, and you only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there's no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed's going to help you get the important hire you need just like they have for over 3 million businesses. So right now, Indeed's offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast is BetOnline. You might not be going to a game this year as we wait for the world to sort itself out and for this pandemic to end and for it to be safe to go back to live sporting events. But in the meantime, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. Obviously, there's no hockey or basketball on right now anymore with their seasons over, but football's still on. And down the road, when we know when the NHL season's going to be getting back, you're going to be able to go on there and start wagering on futures like championship, who do you think is going to win next season, Stanley Cup, wagering on wins, uh, you know, player props. There's going to be a lot of good stuff there. So uh, I recommend going there now and familiarizing yourself with it and trying it out and taking it for a spin and then getting ready in advance of the next season. So just head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses they've got there. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag to let them know that we sent you. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Before we get into, I guess he, Rutherford did technically acquire Hornquist in the first place, but when I was thinking about this from the Kapanen perspective, the list, and this is sort of the lasting legacy for me, of uh of Jim Rutherford and what I think about whenever I think about his uh his tenure as Penguins GM is the list and what an impressive list it is of players that he both traded for and traded away or I guess traded away and then traded back for at some point it's it's truly remarkable you do rarely see it like we joked when Brendan Saad got traded recently by by Chicago about how they've basically lost every single time they've either traded Brendan Saad away or traded for him but for the Penguins, it's it's remarkable how many times they've seemingly flip-flopped on talents. I understand that sort of situations change and certain opportunities arise, but for them to, in such a short order too, and I guess the the sort of apex of that was basically renting Jamie Alexiak for a while and then trading him back for the same pick you traded for him in the first place. But it's just, I mean, what a what a remarkable list. I was putting it together and then it was just like at some point it got accrued so many names that I kind of just stopped and, and gave up because it basically could have filled a full page in my notebook of players that, uh, that could fit that bill. Sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, Connor Sherry is one, uh, we had him, uh, you know, that experience last year, Evan Rodriguez most recently is 
uh, he came over from uh, well, uh, uh, you know, wasn't qualified. The the, the the trade tree, and this is an all timer, trading the first round pick, and these are these are mixed results. And some of these trades were actually good, but trading the 2015 first for David Perron, which became Matt Barzell, then a year later, out to the month, trading David Perron for Carl Hagelin, who obviously had a great run with that HBK line, then two years later, trading Hagelin for Pearson, then a year later, or I guess a couple months later. No, it wasn't yeah, it was a couple a months later, from yeah. November to February, trading Pearson for Goodbranson, and then a handful of months later, again trading Goodbranson for a future seven. And I guess you know you could point to it and be like, listen, that trade tree involved Carl Hagelin, who was a key member of two Stanley Cup winning teams. So ultimately, who cares? But just in terms of asset management, in terms of uh, you know just the 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 details of what happened there. Um, that is a very Jim Jim Rutherford sequence for me. It is, and, and now we start to wade into the uh, conversation, and this is a frequent one in Pittsburgh. Of got to give Jim Rutherford a ton of credit for just being willing to suck it up and move on from a mistake. But eventually, you you get lost in the fact that all you're really doing is chasing this long list of fixing mistakes, or rectifying issues that were never rectified fully and you don't ever really come full circle and it's uh, a lot of tinkering right i think to your point look at that trade tree alone um that's not even to get into i mean there's just i mean i'm sure that you could probably dig up some unbelievable ones uh it, it it's just never really ending and and you know Gren, yeah sure he's made some shrewd moves you know tanner pearson that didn't work out you know, was able to move on quickly, but that that's always it's almost like never ending. And, and what do we do in six months, you know, eight months if Kasperi Kapanen doesn't work out, uh, doesn't fit in on either the, thir- the first or third line? Does that become a problem that needs to be fixed? And if so, are you now fixing a problem that you gave up all those mm-hmm. assets for eight months afterwards? You know, um, you know, again, the. the don't get me wrong that these are it's it's good to be able to fix an issue and to be able to move on and not we see tons of teams get attached to just bad wingers all the time you know never move on uh, or they do and it's too late uh, but you know you're in an end, an endless cycle of fixing you are you get kind of emotionally attached and then you sort of um you kind of double down and you don't acknowledge the on cost and and sometimes you see it in the form of well we paid this player so we're just going to keep feeding them premium mice time and making our team better worse as we go along as opposed to either trading them or demoting them. But it's really tough to sort of go to your owner and admit that we just spent a bunch of money or or traded all these assets for this player and all of a sudden we realized it was a mistake and we're responsible for it. So it's great that he's able to do so. And a lot of GMs can't in this league. But when you have to keep going back to that well and keep doing it, you have to wonder whether the initial process is flawed. And, And that's a great segue for us to talk about the Jack Johnson buyout, to talk about the Cody CC signing to talk about the Mike Matheson trade to talk about this Penguins blue line and, and this team's evaluation of defensemen and whether that's a blind spot and sort of what the outlook for the team is moving forward with that. And and the reason why I say with Johnson is because it's just amazing to sort of see at the time when he signed that five-year deal for 16.25 million in the summer of 2018, there was just so much sort of uh, puffing out of the chest and, and comments about Oh, this player is actually good. You, you you don't know what you're talking about. The Penguins are going to squeeze all the value they can out of this. And then just seeing how that quickly that sort of deteriorated to the point where they had to buy him out this year and have him on the books for six more years, including nearly $2 million. 
as a cap hit in 2022, 2023. And it's just, it's been amazing to, um, I don't even want to say vindicating because it's, it's I, I feel bad. And I also, um, it's like such a dead horse at this point that, that beating it, it just seems like a, you know, low hanging fruit, but it's, man, the Jack, the Jack Johnson thing is just the entire saga and sort of how, um, Mike Sullivan ultimately couldn't detach himself from it in that play in series and how they kept trotting him and Justin Schultz out there. And even in the second half of the season when they had injuries and they promoted Johnson to the top pair with Latang and sort of how that kind of nicely dovetailed with the, the team's decline defensively. I mean, there's just so many angles to take from it. Where do you want to start off with when discussing this team's blue line and kind of the decision and, and the talent evaluation they've done with, with some of the pieces they brought in? Well, let's, let's think about this flat cap, right? Big, big financial and economic changes in this league uh, across the board. The Penguins, as constructed currently, because they they haven't they haven't just gone out and gotten Mike Matheson, Cody CC. Uh, obviously, you mentioned they're paying Jack Johnson, which I think any mostly any Penguins fan would be ecstatic to to hand that money out. Um, them they just started GoFundMe if they if they had the opportunity. Um, but they've they've kept Yuso Rikola, right? It was a young Finnish defenseman just recently over to North America that they just seem super reticent to play, period, point blank, despite really, really pleasant on-ice results, super positive on-ice results. Granted, Dimitri, that's what the old uh, sixth-pairing babysitting going on there, right, and making sure the deployments are super friendly. Uh, but when you're on a third pairing in Pittsburgh, you're, you're always in a friendly deployment because you're probably playing with Crosby or Malkin. Right. What's not friendly about that? Uh, regardless, the, the, Chad Ruedel, another player that could have potentially gone in the Cody CC spot, one that's played in the playoffs, one that we're very familiar with, one that just has not been given the opportunity to play. Um, it, it's All those moves culminate in the Penguins entering camp with $11.2 million, 14% of their cap, to numbers 5 through 8 in their defenseman group. Now, that includes players with other clubs, by the way. By comparison, Crosby and Malkin combined for only 22% of the cap. 20, so, <laughs> you know, so basically you're, you're, you're dedicating all that cap space to Matheson, CeCe, Ricola, Ruedel, Johnson, and Nick Bugstad. Six players, two of which uh, are elsewhere, and two of which will not play just by rule of numbers i mean seeing it's a 40 chess move having him having jack johnson land in, in division with the rangers so maybe then maybe that is uh you you'd, you'd pay that price just to see that happen and see him submarine that but i think with and you and i were trading messages with this about cc i think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a too nuanced take for for twitter because everyone kind of just want to dunk on him and certainly Whatever anything Cody CC happens, I'll love to share that video of him missing the net by the biggest margin I've ever seen in that play in series against Columbus. And and his puck skills are, are truly um laughable. But I will say, like, you know, for one year, one point two five, a common refrain is, well, he's gonna play on the third pair, it might be the seventh defenseman. It's one year for that price. Like, who cares? And similar I'm shaking. My similarly, head. Rangers fans said the exact same thing when their team signed Jack Johnson. Uh, except the Rangers only have two left-handed defensemen right now. Right, but so I mean, he, you know, and one of where is he going to? He's got to play somewhere. But here's here's the thing: um, 
like CC is going to play somewhere on this team too. And and the Penguins are chronically hurt. He, well, this defensive group is chronically injured. This is like that. Uh, it, it really is like the Moneyball scene where you, uh, as a GM, you kind of have to take the toy away from the coach because you can't trust them to use it properly. And so for CC, if you're using them correctly, it's fine. Like he's a replacement player, whatever. But we've seen, I mean, how could you have with any good faith that the Penguins are not going to play him too much or give him too much exposure considering what we just saw in the most recent viewings with Jack Johnson? Like, I just think this is going to be um, a classic situation where you walk, go into the year and you're like, mm, it's not a big deal. CC's not going to play that much. And then all of a sudden the game start going, injuries start happening. You go, well... Like, he's pretty big. You know, he's kind of toolsy. He uh, was a former top pick. Um, we're going to kind of give CeCe a bit of a longer look here and see if we can, you know, get more out of him than he's had in his previous stops. And it's going to lead to the same very predictable, very unfortunate results. And I can, it, like, it's exactly what's going to happen. And you can see it happening. And it kind of feels insane because it just keeps, the cycle just keeps going on and on. And it's like the teams don't acknowledge that this is just repeating itself. History really is repeating itself here. The best part about hockey sometimes, Dimitri, is the memeiness of it. Yeah. Right? Let's take a step back and acknowledge that in a very short window of time, the Penguins have had Eric Goodbranson, Jack Johnson, Justin Schultz, and Cody Cece. Some of them at the same time. <laughs> that is truly astonishing. And to, to, for them to have had the success that they've had in those windows is even more astonishing to me. I, so I'm going to start with your point about deployment. A lot of people, and I'll use like Jacques Martin as an example. And if Rangers fans are listening to this ears to the ground folks, cause you're about to hear a lot of it. Um, well, Jacques Martin is, uh, and Sergei Gonchar, they rehabilitated these defensemen. They've changed the way they play the game. No, uh, the Penguins just deployed them in a more sensical fashion. That's really all it was. They started to reap better results out of Justin Schultz when they didn't play him on the top line, uh, top pairing like Edmonton had. Regardless of whether or not it was out of necessity, they just didn't do it. They put him on the third pairing, they gave him very easy minutes, and they reaped good reward out of it. Uh, so I... I to your point, necessity uh, is always a critical factor in hockey. And the Penguins, uh, you know, for any number of reasons, you know, this year was Dumoulin. You know, they had Latang out. Uh, Schultz himself has been hurt so many times. They just they don't stay. I mean, you, you guys have to go up the lineup. It's the way it works. So you sign Cody Cece with the intention of playing him 13 minutes a night as your number six, and uh, you know, 40 games into the season. Next thing you know, he's playing 22 minutes a night on your top line out of necessity. And and the question becomes, you know, you're not in a much better situation if it's Yuso Regola, right? Let's let's be real. Um, but but how big of a difference is it going to be? Well, and you brought this up earlier, where it's like, oh, your third pair of defensemen he's going to look good because they're playing with with Crosby or Malkin. I mean. Just look at Jack Johnson, for example. In his two years with the Penguins, he played 2,500 minutes roughly at 5-on-5 spread over those two years. 600 of those were with Malkin. Or I guess 650 and then 575 with Crosby, so nearly the same. And that's kind of the trap you fall into where it's like, 
okay, so we acknowledge that this player is flawed, has limitations, especially with the puck on their stick. So we're going to cover for that by playing them with our skilled players. But then the problem is the results, you, you wind up dragging down the results of your best players. Yeah. And it's like a very, it's like, it's very insidious, right? Where it's like, you don't mean to do it, but in a way you just wind up bringing the entire operation down because you're trying to cover, you're, you're trying to patch up a hole, patch up a hole there. And then all of a sudden you realize, you kind of look back at you take a step back in the year and you're like, oh my God, how many minutes did we wind up playing Jack Johnson with Sidney Crosby and what were the results? And I'm sure that's like not the plan you go into the year with, but it just kind of keeps happening. And, and that's, I think, what you have to fear here, especially if you think ahead to a potential Cody CC Mike Matheson pairing, which would be, I think, hilarious given their uh, respective skill sets where you have a player who literally cannot make a play with a puck and then a player who makes a lot of plays but also turns it over a ton. And it'd be just really fascinating as a sort of psychological experiment seeing a Matheson Cody CC pair deal with opposing forechecks and seeing how other teams played that and whether they just forced either CC to, to make a play or whether they forced Matheson into more turnovers or how those two would play off of each other. Cause I don't think that's a recipe that is going to like, I, I just, you, it doesn't seem like it was really well thought out from the perspective of sort of mapping out your, your respective skill sets and how those two would play off of each other. So let's get into a discussion, Dimitri, about, I'm going to bust the narrative on this mm. podcast. Hmm. People say, I heard a lot of people say this, people are still saying it. It's not a big deal that Cody Cece can't handle the puck because you could just not give it to him on the breakout, right? I mean, just give it to make sure Mike Matheson's the guy that has the puck. There's other players out there that can handle that responsibility. He doesn't have to do it. It's not a big deal. I Maybe I bought the same story. Right, But I went back and watched tape on Jack Johnson. I wrote this article for The Athletic titled Why the Anti-Jack Johnson People Are Actually Right because I felt like I was going – I had to like – just after the, you know, the PR campaign that happened after the playoffs, I was like, no, no, no. We really need to stick up for ourselves here and prove via video that this is what we think it is. So what happened with the Penguins – You know, we talk about – you always hear the phrase in the hockey, DDD passes, yep. right? Uh, DDD passes accomplish a couple things. One, they waste time. They give the forwards an opportunity, an option, you know, to get back on the breakout or get off the bench. But more often than not, they just facilitate the puck into the hands of the person who's supposed to have it. Right? So a DDD pass would occur when Jack Johnson has the puck on retrieval. You don't want him making the breakout pass. You don't want him to be the player orchestrating it. So I started watching tape when Jack Johnson played with John Marino. Now, you know, Dimitri, you and I both belong to the church. I John love Marino. John Marino. You love him. Uh, John Marino is obviously the guy who's going to be the, the the first pass maker in the Penguins breakout and would get the D-to-D pass as such and begin to get up ice. And lo and behold, what did teams start to do? They started to forecheck the Penguins in a very particular way, in a way that maybe wasn't usual given the circumstances. They would almost do it laterally. So they would come at John Marino from the side and from the front on their forecheck, forcing him to give the puck back to Jack Johnson. And I saw this over and over and over again. And you could see the frustration almost on John Marino's face. Like, come on, give me a break. Who's, or are you going to let me make a pass? Can I make a pass out, you know? Uh, and, and I realized that this was intentional. Teams were forcing Jack Johnson to play the puck. 
and almost every circumstance that he had to was a disaster, as you would probably expect. And uh, I don't know that unless you change the system, Dimitri, or we're in for the same thing with Cody CC. Teams are not going to just let Mike Matheson dance up ice with the puck and not try to force it to the guy who handles it like a grenade. Uh, and I just haven't seen Mike Sullivan solve for that yet, and I don't think that we should expect anything different. Well, okay, here's my issue with the um, idea behind a lot of these moves. You can lump Matheson and Kapanen in here because I think we'd agree, like, when the Penguins, it wasn't necessarily revolutionary, but it re- the concept really swept the league by storm when Mike Sullivan took over and when they had their successful run of those back-to-back cups where this idea of playing fast versus skating fast, right? And you see the puck moving up the ice, the players themselves, they had fast skaters, but sometimes it's more about kind of thinking ahead and having a quick read and getting the puck up before the other team can sort of get back defensively and, and get their defensive shell in place. And with Kapanen, we talked for 20 minutes on the show about how he skates fast, but it might not necessarily be the most functional. With Matheson, he's a guy who turned the puck over. Like the point hockey tweeted out the stat where last year at 5 on 5, one out of five of his basically puck possessions resulted in a turnover. But he's looks great in terms of his puck carrying ability where he can sort of transition the puck with it on his stick. But the Penguins, when they're at their best, they don't necessarily want a defenseman to be taking the puck himself and carrying it up from point A to point B because that's much easier to defend for the opposing team. They would rather have him quickly making a decision from his own zone and getting it up with speed to one of their forwards so that they can attack and probe the defense. And so in terms of that fit, that's what's really bizarre to me where it seems like the Penguins internally were looking at this and they sort of missed what made them special in the first place or maybe they think that they can convert these players into what they want them to play like. But it's just bizarre to me that you would see the success they had for those two years and the way they played and then identify two players who maybe skate fast and can carry the puck but don't actually fit the mold of what the Penguins were good at to begin with. So there's a kind of a larger problem in the atmosphere here that we haven't tapped into yet. And that's what Evgeny Kuznetsov stole from the Penguins in Game 6 in 2017. And it was any semblance of freedom afforded to the Chris Letangs of this world or this team specifically. An active defense now, Dimitri, is just not something that they will Mm do. And they really haven't since then. And I think I'm less worried about Mike Matheson. I think the best way to describe the Penguins' breakout right now is it's like Statue of Liberty based. Uh, Hook and ladder your way up. A lot of puck support. Uh, They don't They'll still stretch past when it's there. Uh, but the whole idea now is work up as a group of three in tandem. Use the boards as like almost a fourth forward. And you just don't see that go to it with the with the defense anymore. You really haven't since that series against the Caps where they really got torched for it and, and paid the price all year long and through the playoffs. <laughs> they never learned those lessons. And it's a, it's, you know, you now you get into like the, the Chris Letang frustration in the fan base where the players that carry the puck the most are going to turn it over the most, right? To Matheson, that was an extreme. And I think the tape I posted on the athletic of him from Florida that I found was he'd like, he'd get behind the net, Dimitri, and just throw it into the crease. Damned if anybody was there. I mean, <laughs> it's just like he'd get to a point and be like, now what? You know, now I'm here. I'm below the goal line. What are we going to do? 
Uh, and that's, I just don't see that happening in Pittsburgh only because they, I feel like that's really been a scaling back. And I think back to Chris Letang scoring against the Sharks uh, and, and, and uh, that you know, ultimately ended up being that cup-clenching goal for the Penguins down low, you know, below the dots of the circle. And you almost say, like, mm, you know, maybe you could use a little bit more of that. Okay, so spinning this forward, I think the the crazy thing is, I think the general tenor of this of this podcast has been kind of like wondering why certain things happened or uh, lamenting the fact that they didn't maximize the opportunity to improve their team. At the same time, if I'm just looking ahead, whenever this next season does start, assuming health, and that's a big if with this Penguins team, especially after what we just saw last year, um, that forward group is arguably one of my favorite groups just in terms of the composition of you know you have got Crosby and Gensel you've got Malkin and Zucker and if you want to play Russ with them then you've got that third line with your kind of traditional with Tanev, Aston Reese and Bluger and then you've kind of got like McCann and Jankowski and Rodriguez and whoever else kind of these like moving parts and you can sort of deploy them as you see fit but it's on paper a group that makes a lot of sense and I still really like this team I'm just trying to sort of shake the most recent viewing of them and I guess the final 20 regular season games because you you look at the first, whatever, 45 games or so uh, from basically October until uh, the end of January, early February, and despite all the injuries, they were winning a lot of games. They were 32, 14, and 5, but also underlying numbers were through the roof where they were basically top five in you know, all the important 5 on 5 metrics in terms of goal differential. And so I while kind of it's a pessimistic view of it in this podcast i do think that uh there's a lot of really interesting pieces here to play with and yeah i guess i'm i'm really um interested to see sort of how this team plays and what the true um not true talent but true um outlook for this team is moving forward whether it was more of that first half and the way they were playing and how the kind of they were this like defensively um dominant team really and maybe part of it was necessity because of all the injuries they had compared to the most recent viewing we had of them but i don't know maybe the the particular talents they identified uh in an attempt to improve their team and avoid a repeat of it maybe shouldn't be too encouraging because it seems like they're it's, they're not on the same page with that but I'm, i i wonder what next year is going to look like for the penguins because i do like that forward group and you know i love john marino chris letang is still really good I guess Tristan Jerry is a bit of a question mark in terms of uh, relying on him as the number one starter, but it's still, despite the general tenor of this episode, I, it's I'm intrigued. I think the the, the question mark for uh, for everyone in Pittsburgh is with that bottom six group in particular. It's got some really hefty defensive presences in it. Uh, you know, Mark Jankowski in particular, I think, is going to step right in and do a job uh, for Jack Zach Aston Reese. Uh, and they're very similar players, I think, in many respects, especially in terms of their defensive impacts. But can it score? Is the depth scoring going to exist for the Penguins? You know, can Evan Rodriguez and Jared McCann, um, you know, carry a load as wingers? Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, Teddy Bluger and Brandon Tanev uh, were just really difficult to handle uh, last year. But again, with the amount of ice time they get, sort of increasing because of their defensive impacts and you know things that come with that you know if Crosby and Malkin aren't scoring the goals is there enough outside of that to carry the load and I feel like there were a lot of 
similarly top-heavy teams, Dimitri, hmm. going back to like 2015, 2014 Penguins years where they got bounced easily just because if you could load up and, you know, it, and let's be fair, it's not it's not easy to stop Crosby and Malkin, but doing it is changing. The, the way you could do it is changing as they as they get older and um you know that's a big that's a big uh big question going into the season but don't you think that the roadmap for this team is to be like a defensively elite team like that that was kind of where they were at their best last year no that's the how i think the backbone really of how they won stanley cups yeah um you know it, it was interesting to see the transition that occurred to the mike sullivan era where you were kind of coming out of a period where playing defense was the focal point right that that the system was geared towards that and mike sullivan comes in and, and sort sort of plays defensive vis-a-vis playing offense right and that that's that four check dimitri i you know as it sounds silly to say this but the adage i always say is you could watch the penguins you know in micro 10 minute elements of a game and if you could see other teams, you know, deferring or having to second guess what's going on because the Penguins have one or two or sometimes three guys up there trying to dictate your breakout, that's often just all you need to figure out whether or not they're going to win that game. Because if that element's not there, the rest of it just collapses. Yeah, and it was there um, for large stretches of the regular season, and then it just looked like an entirely different team. I think they kind of, yeah, they, they, they it's weird because. I think part of it was borne out by necessity because that third line was really the only one that was healthy throughout. And, you know, at a certain point, Crosby was out for a while and then he comes back, Malcolm was out for a while. And so they sort of had to play that certain way. And then it felt like when they got fully healthy and everyone came together, they sort of miscast themselves or they thought like, oh, now we're going to get back to being this like high-powered offensive team. And, and the the personnel just wasn't really there to pull that off. And I, I don't know what happened there. It seems like there's a big time disconnect between what they actually were and what they thought thought they were. But like the, the blueprint, just if you go back and you just watch those first 40 games last year, like that there's something there. I don't think that just that's just gone. But the fact that they went out and identified and brought in guys like Mike Matheson and, and Kasperi Kapanen leads me to believe that they might not be too inclined to fully just dive into into that all over again. All that aside, though, I do think that, uh, and I, I'll probably you can laugh at me for this if you want. I do think that a Mathis and CC pairing, oh my God, is, and a, is gonna be is gonna be better. It's gonna be better than the Schultz Johnson pairing. Well, but the bar, I mean, yeah, is so low. Uh, you know, we don't ever judge. You know, it's it's stupid to judge defensiveness by goals against. We know that's right. Goals against the goaltending metric. But when you're getting sank at scoring chances and possession and you're on the ice for five of eight even strength goals, uh, it's difficult to be worse than that. And I just <laughs> I think even for Matheson and CC, it they'll struggle to to not be to not clear that bar. Um, I, I I think that for you know thinking about again and this is we're having a lot of stylistic discussions here i understand Mm -hmm. that um but the inaction is what drove the change you saw last season and it's almost like when you have all the luxuries of the penguins lineup in there at one time you have your letang your dumoulin crosby malkin it's i think there's a, a sense of give them the puck immediately regardless of circumstance 
right? And, yep. and and they don't they don't necessarily want that. You know, Malkin doesn't complain about it. You know, that's the kind of player he is. But the 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 whole element of it works so much better. Uh, I you know, looking back at last season, when one of them are out, the buy-in is just there. And I and I laughed at that when people said it. And it was such a talking point last season. I chuckle at it to myself, like, ah, come on. That's not really what's going on out there. But you go back and look in hindsight and you watch the tape and that that the spirit of the system, you could almost call it, it just fell apart when everybody got healthy. And um, you know, good goaltending masks a lot and you know, Tristan Jari kinda hit that wall, so to speak. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, there is something to be said uh, for, for everyone being in and, and the element that just again that systemic element changed so drastically once that happened. Yeah, well, it's a big question mark. Uh, I guess we're just gonna have to wait to see how it goes. But I'm gonna definitely hold you to that comment about the uh, Mike Mathis and Cody CC pairing, and 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 we'll see. Um, but Jesse, this was a blast, man. I'm glad we got to do this. Um, there's no one else I would have rather dissected these X's and O's with you. Plug some stuff. Where can people check out your work? What are you working on these days during the off season, and and get into all that good stuff? Well, here's the thing. Um, in the, just in the spirit of toughing it out. I crowdsourced uh, today on Twitter what Penguins fans want to see video of mm-hmm. on Cody CC. And starting tomorrow, Dimitri, I'm going to—I uh, uh, don't know if I'm going to get like some CBD or something. I'm going to like put on some ambient noise, and I'm going to throw the tape of the Maple Leafs on, and we're going to just sink our teeth into this sucker and give a little honest uh, Cody CC video assessment. We need a frame-by-frame breakdown of uh, him taking that shot to miss the net against Columbus in the well, play. Thankfully, I have your tweet favorited, so I nice. can easily access it for later. Looking forward to it. All right, man, this is a blast. We'll, uh, we'll definitely circle back to this and, and touch base once the season gets going. Thank you. Before we get out of here, I just want to quickly thank everyone for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation uh, Jesse Marshall and I just had. Um, go back into the archives and listen to some of the most recent shows we've done. We had Thomas Trance on talking about the Canucks and their busy offseason, or lack thereof. Um, we did a UFA recap with Domo Shishin and Allison Lucan. We did a draft recap with Will Scouch. We did a mock draft before that. I know it's kind of outdated now, but you can still go back and listen to the analysis Cam Robinson and Rachel Dory had on the top prospects in this year's NHL draft. And uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming down the road. We'll do some uh, dust off the old rewatchables and do some old games with some fun guests. We'll talk more. We'll do more kind of team deep dives uh, of teams of note and what to think about them moving forward and some of the stuff they've done and then get into some sort of general off-season stuff and uh, have fun with it so i'm really looking forward to the shows to come there's going to be a lot at least once a week hopefully up to two uh, episodes per week at some point so make sure you're subscribed uh, and please as a reminder if you haven't already it only takes a minute it means a lot to us just go rate review the show really easy to do if you're swamped for time you can just give us that five-star rating if you want to actually leave a review and get a bit personal tell us what you like about the show uh, what you enjoy about it what it means to you that would be great i really appreciate that and uh, we'll be back in a couple days with another show and so until then the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich follow on twitter at dim and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.